This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to speechtherapypd.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. Speechtherapypd.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. I've observed through the years that all speech-language pathologists have one major thing in common, and that is their dedication to do what's most beneficial with their therapy kids and adults. Most therapists care so much that even if they don't feel immediately qualified to do a certain type of therapy, they'll work their head off trying to figure it out. There's an obvious and amazing giving trait there. Michelle Dawson has that trait. She works with very young, unique children, then transitions them into the schools where the school SLP takes on the responsibilities. But let's face it, sometimes the transfer process fails, and sometimes the school SLP doesn't feel ready for those responsibilities. So what do we do? Get your pen and paper ready. Michelle's got answers for us. Today, my guest is Michelle Dawson. She earned her Master's in Communicative Sciences and Disorders in 2009 from James Madison University in Harrisburg, Virginia. Upon completion of her Master's, she worked for Riverside Walter Reed Hospital, also in Virginia, where she was the first full-time SLP in the hospital's history. There, she advocated for an oral care protocol and the establishment of Speech Therapy Involvement and Treatment of Oncology Patients. Very cool. In 2012, she and her husband moved to South Carolina, where they currently live. And since then, she's primarily worked as an early intervention slash home health speech language pathologist, specializing in the treatment of medically fragile and complex etiology cases. Michelle is an accomplished presenter and has given several lectures on topics such as infantile dysphagia, sensory integration from the SLP perspective, and also co-authored a course on best practices and early intervention. She also has several video courses on speechtherapypd.com and is the host of the First Bite podcast. And as if that isn't enough, she's volunteered extensively within the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association and was the 2018 president. I know that she is one busy, in-demand lady, so we're very fortunate to have her here. 
Welcome to the speech link, Michelle. Hey, thank you for having me. (laughs) I am so excited to finally get a chance (laughs) to sit down and talk with you, girl. I think it's going to be fun. I am glad that our stars aligned. Everyone has power. There's no more thunderstorms and all is well. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. We had to sort of put off our times because electricity went off and the rain came through. And yeah, I mean, it's been kind of crazy. We're in the same hemisphere here, but yeah, totally crazy weather patterns. So I have been in the elementary schools, junior high, high school, pretty much all my life except with a small stint at a clinic in Texas. And then also I did, you know, quite a bit of private practice. So I'm kind of at that level. So I would receive, you know, the preschoolers that come through. But I really want to know firsthand from you about the children that you serve, because you work with EI kids, early intervention kids, you work with preschoolers and so on. So give us a background or a baseline knowledge of, let's start first with the EI kids. Who do you serve? What do you see? What do they look like? What are their characteristics and so on? So I am the therapist that everybody calls when we don't know what to do or we're stumped. Or if it's the really complex case that folks are hesitant to take on. I did two evals this week. And both of them were um, non-accidental traumas, which is a nice way of saying shaken baby syndrome and or suffocation. So to quote my daddy, I get the least of these. And that could make a body, I mean, that could wear a body down. I mean, that really truthfully could. I mean, trust me, I have my days where I come home and I'm mentally, emotionally, physically drained because I see tough, sad cases. Then I turn around and My little guy today tried to kiss Paul McCarty on a cell phone because he was able to activate to say, play Hey Jude (laughs) on his Alexa. So like, rock on his little bad self. Yeah. So I get babies everywhere from straight out of the NICU. If we're born prematurely or we're born and we have Down syndrome, but we're having difficulty latching at bottle or breast. I do actually, I just sat for and passed my CLC board exams back in March. So, you know, I've given advice to certified lactation counselors, you know, for the last couple of years and kind of pitched in when like the child had a neuroatypacy. And I've done that for years. And then as a mom, I got to breastfeed both of my tiny humans, (laughs) which as a mom, I have to say, they never go back. Like I seriously lost (laughs) two cup sizes. And then when I lay down the cricket, this did not happen two children ago. (laughs) You know, there's women listening that are like, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved breastfeeding. I mean, I only got to do it for five and a half months with the first and six months with the second before they were like, real food. (laughs) But it was such a joyful period. And what I have found is that a lot of our babies that are special needs, they, they don't get that opportunity. And normally it's because of underlying structural abnormalities with their airway. So there's a couple diagnoses that are really prevalent, like laryngomalacia or trachomalacia, which is The easiest way to like high level explain it is like a low tone, aberrant or regular shaped laryngeal structures, like an omega shaped epiglottis. Hmm. I always call it, it looks like a floppy tulip petal. You know, a tulip petal, that's how I get my sanity is like garden, right? 
So a tulip petal should be crisp and firm and upright. Yes. And they have a distinct shape. Well, with Loringa Malaysia, if your tulip petal is your epiglottis, with Loringa Malaysia, it's kind of elongated and really floppy and very wide and it gets sucked in. Mm. And so a lot of the babies that I treat that are breastfeeding or they're um, straight out of the NICU or they've had that tricksy diagnosis of failure to thrive, which I don't think is a thing. I think failure to thrive is the catch-all for like, we don't really know what's going on, but we're just going to lump it over here and put it under the carpet. Yeah. A lot of those babies end up having laryngomalacia and trachomalacia. And with trachomalacia, the actual vocal folds or areopiglottic folds can even close in and kind of move into the airway. Oh, yeah. And so if a baby has residue, well, they're going to inhale that residue. Yeah. So I know this, this may be a stupid question. But is it because of the way that they are formed at, at birth, or is there something muscularly f- neurophysiological that is not getting innervated, or why is that happening? All of the above. So with our babies that have Down syndrome, it's typically because of the low tone, but it's not just hypotonia of like gross motors, mm-hmm. it's hypotonia permeating all of the systems which is why our babies with Down syndrome have such bad constipation. They even have the low tone of their GI tract. It's not that they don't have, I mean, yes, they do have the low tone, so they can't squeeze to actually have a good bowel movement, but they have a low tone periostaltic wave in the esophagus. They have delayed gastric emptying because of low tone with their stomach. And it goes through all of their systems. So. I get them all the way from straight out of the NICU to, unfortunately, like today, where they were born typically developing, but then had an event happen. Sometimes it's sustained trauma. Sometimes it was everything's plunking along and they're hanging on their developmental norms, but they hit like a major, what should be a major milestone by like six months, we should be doing pureed foods and they can't transition off of bottle or breast into pureed foods. And then we find out that there was some underlying neural abnormalities. And so I go all the way up to elementary and middle school age, but I still treat the more involved children within that age. So where they may be nine, they're still functioning like toddler or young child and sprinkle in numerous genetic conditions, uh, Rubenstein-Tabey, already mentioned Down syndrome, 22Q11. This is a good one. A lot of the school SLPs are familiar with, and I, okay, so background, while I was working on my master's degrees, I worked full-time in the public schools as a speech teacher back in Virginia. So I ran a caseload of 56 to 63 for an entire, Mm -hmm. you know, several school years while I was getting my master's. So I would be on the receiving end of the early intervention clinician, right? And it was really interesting because, you know, I'd take a grad class and, you know, immediately think I knew all the things, right? But, you know, you can't tell a graduate student they don't know anything. It's like, dude, I mean... I didn't know diddly. I mean, I'm 36 years old and I'm still like, I don't know what I'm doing. But like, (laughs) I try to put on a smile as if I do. So like, yay. But don't feel badly. I mean, 
you know, I'm, I'm a hundred and I still say that. So, you know, I don't know if it's a syndrome that just hangs on, you know, but I, I feel a little more comfortable now than I did, you know, 40 years ago, but yeah, there's always something, some challenge. And I think that's probably the fun thing about speech language pathology. We're not just and I don't mean this in a negative way. We're not in like fourth grade as a fourth grade teacher where we're teaching this curriculum year after year. We have kids that challenge us and you never arrive. I hate to tell people that you don't arrive. You just keep moving along. You're saying you just keep chugging along and you keep learning, you keep growing and you chart that away in your brain. And then, you know, you'll find that, you know, somewhere down the line, you'll have a kid that needs that piece of information. So they are all different. And and you certainly yeah. have all different kids and unique kids. And I'm sorry, I jumped in and interrupted your unique child there. And I think you were talking about somebody that you had seen recently. Yeah. Well, what it made me think about this was that I had the kiddo that had like I took my grad class on like cleft palate and they lumped the cleft palate in with genetic conditions, mm-hmm. like pediatric genetic conditions. Like it was half one and half the other for the semester. And at the time I didn't understand why that was connected, but in retrospect, like that was brilliant what our, the professors did because there was this kiddo that, you know, she was in the early childhood special education class and I was going in and treating, you know, just as a language, but she was just that kid, right. you know, that FLK kid on your caseload, like that funny little kid, absolutely adorable. She called her shoes, her heel highs. And I will <laughs> clear as a bell. I remember her mama telling me, do not fix that. My baby girl can wear her heel highs all she wants. <laughs> and I was like, yes, ma'am. They are little high heels they were with bows. She always had to have bows because she was like the ultimate, you know, Virginia version of Southern oh, Belle. Shit. And uh, she had nasal emissions. No matter what I did, we couldn't get rid of the nasal emissions. And yeah. it was, you know, and, and I'm not the person to go to for Arctic and phonology. My youngest is in therapy, like in speech therapy for Arctic and phonology. This is not the thing that I do. And I did a better job at it several years ago when I was working in the schools, but now, you know, I'm rusty with this. Yeah. And at the time I was like, something's not right. And she also had slightly wide spaced eyes. And, you know, this is a little bitty rural country you know, public education system. Right. And nobody had told me at this time that I couldn't tell a family to go seek referrals. And that, which is interesting because in different states, the interpretation of a school speech pathologist making recommendations or a school district in general making recommendations is accepted and not accepted. Like when I was lecturing up in New York, the school speech pathologist, if they have concerns for an airway obstruction or a submucous cleft, they're allowed to say you need to follow up with an ENT. In South Carolina, a school speech pathologist cannot say that. There's different states where the school nurse can give those recommendations um, with the end result being the concern that the school district will have to pay for it. So anyways, I- Yeah, if you follow the money. Yeah, that's- Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But that just begs the question, like, why is that federal law interpreted differently in different states? Like- I don't know. I just feel like we'd be able to do a better job of serving the tiny humans that we're called to serve if we could all freely make the referrals that are clearly clinically indicated, right? Yes, no doubt about that. And you have living time left. Yeah. And you need to work on that. <laughs> I <gotta laughs> you, that. You need to advocate for that. I'll stand behind it as long as I'm here. 
I think that, you know, I, I wouldn't even have the slightest idea how to approach doing that. I think that you're probably a little more politically oriented than I am. And you need to do that. I would support you on that because therapists are frustrated across the country because most states do not allow speech therapists in the schools to make a referral. Otherwise, the school district is financially liable and therapists are frustrated with that. Yeah. So one day when I decide I want to run for politics, then I'll be sure to like... (laughs) You said it here. It's in stone. (laughs) Each link has stated Michelle will be the first woman president. I'm just kidding. Although I would totally do that. (laughs) But like, let's be honest, the education system needs reform as it is. Yes, that was, that's another one. Okay, in your spare time, you need to work on that one, girl. There you go. Oh my God, that's great. Uh, well, so like with this little lady, what I ended up, I just flat out told mom, I was like, you know, we talked about my class, this thing called Vila Cardiofacial Syndrome, and, and she's got just all these little characteristics. I really think you should see a geneticist. And like for that one kid, that one weird connection, because I paid attention in class, she had it. And then after they did the genetic testing, that's when they found that the baby girl who was four had a hole in her heart. They had missed the heart murmur because she saw an older pediatrician who was relying on his stethoscope all these years. And they could never figure out why she couldn't gain weight. And the nasal emissions were due to a submucous cleft. Yes. I mean, like she, between summers, had like two surgeries, uh, one for her heart, one for her submucous cleft. But I mean, it was just, I mean, she comes back and all of a sudden she can do her K and G sounds like, ta-da! like that wasn't any, I mean, like it was just me having the ability to like connect a neuron. But I mean, those are, and I say that because we used to, when I came through grad school, it was taught that velocardiofacial was its mm-hmm. own entity, right? Now we're finding that velocardiofacial is the same genetic mutation as DeGeorge's anomaly. But DeGeorge's syndrome or DeGeorge's anomaly is a more severe presentation, but it's actually the 22Q11.2 mutation or I guess deletion, but like, it's just so fascinating to me that, you know, we were taught that this is two separate things a million years ago when I was in grad school. But like now we know it's the same one because the science behind genetics is evolving and improving. Okay. So you have hit upon many medically yeah. fragile children from several different perspectives. Yeah. You're not just talking about uh you know a child that has been diagnosed at 2 that's on the spectrum somewhere along the spectrum. You're talking about medically fragile kids involved. And I get kiddos a lot of times because I have in my short time I have seen so many different things and I have researched so many different topics. I, and, and let's be honest, I've had amazing mentors brought into my professional world. I'm able to connect all these different dots. And the best part is when I am stuck, I have the people to be able to go to. And that's the critical part is being able to say, I don't know. But here's a person that you should go talk to and then getting them to that person or that specialist. And I mean, I'm quick. I'll pass a baby down to um, MUSC to see the speech pathology department down there because their 
evidence-based triangle, that one corner, I always, I don't know why, but I always use this as my left-hand corner, but my left-hand corner of my evidence-based triangle, that sample size for a variety of children and diagnoses and disorders is so much larger than mine because they work at the major children's hospital for our state. And so I regularly get their advice and their wisdom, and that shapes my evidence-based triangle, which is, that's cool. That is very cool. That is very cool. And that's way past Googling it. Oh, I am quick. I do the Google at two o'clock in the morning when I'm stumped and I can't think. But the, the trick is translating all of that from my medically fragile background and experiences and transitioning that over to the public school. Char Beauchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal. I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no, their plans start at $89 a year for heaven's sake. And then I I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. You know, I get, I have this sense you are the initiator. You are the first out of the gate mm-hmm. experience that the parents or caregivers mm-hmm. have, that the child has, that the other professionals that are involved have. You are the person on the front lines. And then, you know, when I think of the person in the elementary school or somewhere, it's like passing the baton. Yes. And, you know, there's a transition. And, You know, this is literally why I wanted to spend so much time on this, because a lot of us in the schools don't know some of these things about the medically fragile kids and so on. So, but, so we need to know these things. We don't have to know it as well as you, but we need to know about it and be willing to research some of these things. So, okay, take us into the transition. Okay. So that's, and I have to say, that's a hard part. So I have a hard time letting go because normally the early intervention clinician gets all the first, right? Like I get, I get the first bites. I get the first words. I get, I get the first sips and it's like, it's, it's like giving birth, but with a lot less pain. I mean, there's, there's that. And there is that, but but, and it's hard. 
And unfortunately, what I have found is when I first started, I practice under the assumption that when I had a kiddo transition out of my care into the LEA, the local educational associate or agency, my records immediately went with them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I assumed that my eval, that my plan of cares, my discharge summary, everything automatically went over and it does not. So number one, that tends to be a huge, significant breakdown. A lot of times, the only document that transfers is the IFSP. What is that? The Infant Family Service Plan. That's our version of an IEP. So the IEP Part B Special Education is 3 to 21. Part C is birth to 3. And Part A is adults. Like I have a special needs brother-in-law. He's Part A, right? So with the early intervention component... When the early interventionist writes down our goals, she often puts them into uh, family-friendly terms, which is ideal for the family. However, I am treating a medically involved child, so I have to write my own evals and my own plan of cares and all my documentation because the physician's going to see it. Because the rest of the medical team will see my own notes, like on the like the program that I use for billing and documentation, right? So I may say, and I'll write my technical goal: patient will tolerate safest, least restrictive PO diet of pureed foods, and and I'm using the national dysphagia diet because effective May one, we're changing to ITSI, which is the international dysphagia. Okay, okay, I didn't get that. I'm in the weeds. Okay. Okay. So I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. That's totally fine. So until May 1, those of us that are treating swallowing and feeding disorders are still practicing under the national dysphagia diet. And it goes like pureed, mech chop, like the different consistencies like that. Mm -hmm. Liquids are thin, naturally thick, nectar thick, honey thick, pudding thick. And that's the diet. Right. But effective May 1, it transfers over to IDSI, hmm. which is the International Dysphagia something something. <laughs> <laughs> Real technical talk right there. <laughs> but I still have a couple. I got a little bit of time before I have to crash course and update all my documentation. And that's on my bucket list for this weekend after some oh, no. practice and before a birthday party. <laughs> but like... Uh, but that's okay because I will get her done get her before done. May one. But I have to write my notes according to current medical best practice. But that's too technical to put in the IFSP. So what the early interventionist will turn around and write is patient will eat pudding <laughs> or like patient will eat finger foods without choking or, you know, something to that effect, which... When that transfers to the public schools, that may not include the fact that the kid has cyclic vomiting or the fact that the kid has Hirschsprung's disease where they're missing the innervation for like the last part of their large intestines. Or I had a kiddo one time that I was working with in the home who when they catheterized her in the NICU, somebody perforated her bladder and the cath ended in her heart (gasps) and they couldn't remove the catheter from her heart because when they tried, she went into, I think, I 
can't remember now. It's been so long. I can't remember if it was rapid rate or slow rate, but it went bad. And so when they transitioned her to public schools, nobody told the public school that she had a catheter sticking out of her heart. No, and so no. I went for the transition meeting and I was like, now you'll have to be very careful when you maneuver her because of her catheter. And they're like, she doesn't have a catheter. I'm like, yeah, she does. It's in her lower left chamber. And everybody at the table is like, what? what? <laughs> like, oh, good to know. Oh my gosh. <gasps> that is literally what every woman at the table said. And one lady definitely dropped the F-bomb. And oh, like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. No doubt. And surprisingly enough, it wasn't me. But I mean, no. it <laughs> so, you know, life. But that's the hardest part is that transition doesn't take place. So that communication on even a functional level. And so what I started doing was I would start making sure that the lovely lady, Jennifer Tardy, who does my referral coordination, I make sure that she actually sends, like when we know the kids going to the public schools, like she will send the documents, like my recent plan of care in, and I'll try to track down who, like in our local community, like I know one therapist that works in like one district and another therapist that works in another, like I will pick up the phone and personally call that SLP because I know that that's the SLP who will be treating my kid. Yes. Oh, that's nice. That's the ideal. Yes. That's, and that's just it. That's the ideal. However, I have caused frustrations because I have had crucial conversations with certain school districts that the medically fragile child is in need of homebound services. Like I had one kid who was seizing uncontrollably and the particular school district said that they could handle it during school hours. However, the neurologist, the physician, OTPT and myself in the home health world, we had all written letters saying this child needs homebound services. But because of financial constraints on the school district, they were adamant that the child be brought in. Oh dear. And it ended right before due process before they said, yes, the child does warrant homebound services because the kid was that involved and needed like round the clock nursing care. Yes. And my heart went out to the SLP across the table because she was looking at me like, we got no business bringing this kid here. Like this kid needs to be at home. But she couldn't say that right. because of, you know, legal framework, you know? But I mean, like, Everything that was happening through telekinesis <laughs> was like, <laughs> I'm stuck. My hands are tied. Yes. But like, rawr. And then I also am well aware that the skill set with which school SLPs have, I do not have. I don't, don't give me the kid that stutters. I will make them more disfluent. Okay. <laughs> like, let's be perfectly clear. I could not, would not, do not do that. Don't give me the kiddo that is working on like consonant blends because I mean, heavens to Betsy's bear still in rehab for that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, technically it's hab, but like those are the things and like sentences and reading. No, 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 no. I didn't even have that covered in grad school. Like my God, the wheelhouse that y'all have is amazing to me. But now we're asking school SLPs to also take on feeding, which is so outside of many people's comfort zones. Yes. Okay. So I say that because there are resources out there for that. Susan Evans Morris is amazing. Uh, anything you can get your hands on by her. Asha actually has a specific two-hour webinar 
that you can take that's designed by a speech pathologist and one of Ash's lawyers about the legal framework regarding feeding and swallowing within the public schools. And the 30 second snapshot is the people, the families that are suing to have it covered, they're winning the cases because it becomes a least restrictive environment component. Mm -hmm. Child cannot eat by mouth or eat with peers and has to take time out to have alternate means of PO given, then they're not able to access their LRE to the full extent possible. Mm -hmm. And so ASHA went, they did the legal framework on it, and then they have a ton of resources on how to actually write IEPs for it, Mm -hmm. how to incorporate the goals in, and they've got some amazing resources there. So I mean, I am the person who several years ago, come December, I'm like, oh my God, I got to pay my ash dues. Why do they do this to us? What are they doing for us? And then like, I actually got involved and started advocating. And now I'm like, take my money because (laughs) they give you the resources. They give you this stuff. I mean, they have school resources for pediatric dysphagia for free on their practice portal, which is amazing. And they have people whose job it is to go do the research and just give you the evidence. And I got to use like 14 clicks and you're going to find it. But um, that's, that's kind of cool. But yeah, that is very helpful. Yes. Yeah. And there is information out there. I know it is another thing. I mean, right now there's a big push for school speech language pathologists to learn about reading. Mm-hmm. And then also I know that there's a push for writing as well. Yeah. So then here comes feeding, you know, I mean, it's a lot to ask of school therapists because there is such a breadth and we're expected to go into the classrooms or at least a lot of, of us are and you know work in the classrooms and work with the teachers and so on. And th- there is there is so much information out there to help us, but then we're also, you know, we're busy with our 80 kids and trying to do the evaluations and write the reports and you know get the kids into therapy and help somebody. So when do you do it all? You know, I mean it's kind of a catch-22. The information's there, but then when, when do we have time to actually learn it and then implement it? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, but what you're saying makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense to me. Let's go back and clarify that a little bit because, yes, I have heard that many of us you know, in the schools need to know more about feeding, but where is that coming from? The lawsuits. That's really what's driving it. The, okay. the lawsuits are driving the change. And it's, it's really truthfully families wanting services. And the catch is the school districts have, and I can speak to that historically here in South Carolina as well. The school districts do not want children removed from school hours to go get outside therapies mm-hmm. afterwards. Okay. So what, and part of me, I've never seen this written But I have a hunch school districts are able to bill for Medicaid school for our, I mean, speech pathologists in the public schools are money makers for the school districts. Because if you have your ASHA C's and if you have your state license, then your, you, y'all lovely ladies have to do all of that Medicaid reimbursement, right? That's going on right now. Yes. So now if for some reason your school staff member or speech pathologist cannot treat a certain etiology, the child would have to get picked up 
early because the private clinicians, the home health clinicians, the clinic clinicians, we typically close our shop at five. There are so many after school hours. Like we may, you may have one or two sessions five days a week after school and that's it. We, we can't fit all of the after school kids in okay. those spots, right? And then the part with the feeding kiddos is it's best to do a dysphagia or feeding session when the kiddo's hungry. And so normally after school hours, they might have a snack, but it's not quite dinner time. And so it's hard to work on feeding when it's not their normal time, right? Right. And and then you get the catch where some of these kiddos that are so medically fragile, they have to eat on a specific time regimen around medications being administered. Because, I mean, there's certain, like, I mean, there's certain acid reflux medicines that cannot be given within a certain time frame of seizure medications. Otherwise, they can counteract, which is like not fun to watch. <laughs> but, like, yeah. Yeah. So there's those factors. So parents have said, no, I want these services within the school. And I, I mean, I know that there was one issue that went um, to due process up in one of our counties where the schools were counting it as truancy. They didn't have a clinician on staff that would treat. And that clinician stood her ground. And I was so proud of her because we are not to practice outside of our own unique scopes. I will not treat a kid that stutters because I can't do that. I mean, like, I don't know how to fix that. And so that's not within my wheelhouse. I won't do it. And the clinician said, this is not within my wheelhouse. I could cause harm. And that's one of our paramount factors of our code of ethics is do no harm, right? And so she said, I cannot do this. It's not part of the, I, like, I can't treat this. They're going to have to go to the rehab clinic. They have to leave early or come in late to go do this. And the school district was trying to file truancy against the family. So then they turned around like sued and like, I mean, it all resolved. There's a happy ending, but like that's happening all over. And so what I have seen is that here in the Midlands, we have started, some of the local school districts have started recruiting some of the rehab SLPs to come in and do like contract status. And one of my dear friends has started doing that. And she's also mentoring. So she took on a CF whose, you know, clinical practicums included a lot of feeding and swallowing rotations at numerous children's hospitals. And she mentored her, which was really cool. So now there's two of them for the entire school district where all they do is feeding and swallowing. And they go through the school district and they do trainings with everybody that would feed the kid everybody that would feed the kid and down to the parapro. And because, I mean, you know, at home we have unskilled, untrained family members that are feeding. So same concept, right? And they would set up like safety plans. You know, if the child is presenting with these signs and symptoms, there, you know, no PO trials per off, nothing by mouth today. Let's utilize the G-tube. Because like, I mean, if I'm having a bad day, you know, I may, if I'm sick, I may not want to eat. Well, some of our kids get the sniffles, but a sniffle for you and me, eh, it sucks. A sniffle for a kid that has a compromised airway with a trach and they're doing advanced PO trials, probably not an ideal day to work on PO trials, right? So lawsuits, lawsuits are driving the change, but, 
And one thing, and you, 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 you touched on something. How do we, how do we get taught this? Okay. So if you're in the public schools and this is something that's coming your way, then what I have encouraged some people and what I have found out is actually working is one of the SLPs is saying, okay, here's the most recent round of lawsuits and you can reach out to ASHA and they can help give you guidance on this, which is a really cool call the action help center, which is really, really cool. Then you turn around and say, these are some resources. These are some courses. This one gives me the legal framework. This one gives me basically like a how-to and see if they will pay for it. Because once school district administrators hear the potential for lawsuits, the potential for child harm, then they, you know, their wheels start spinning and a lot of, and they realize school speech pathologists, they are making bank off of what the compensation is for the amount of rehab that's being done versus the discrepancy in their salary, which I can, been there, done that. <laughs> but like, yeah. Uh, right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Everybody is like, yeah. What's uh, so, but when you present them with that data, it's pretty profound. And so that's how some SLPs have been able to get training in it. Or been able to go to trainings like over the summers when there's no no students, or even so far as like contracting, like find a really good clinic nearby and see if they'd be willing to contract in or come do trainings. So, okay, good. I don't want to raise the problem without offering a solution. Yes, because yeah, there has to be some solution, and mm-hmm. you know, just like you say, we all have our specialty. Yeah, or specialties. And I mean, that's a good thing because I mean, I'm with you. I can't quotes fix a stutter to save my life, even though, you know, <laughs> I, I sat and enjoyed the tutelage of Dr. Charles Van Riper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's amazing. It didn't stick. Okay. So, you know, I'm more artistic and language, yeah. you know, that's my thing. But yes, we all have our own specialties and things that we like and that we feel that we can be beneficial to others. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I would like to kind of get back to, I feel like there's still in my mind that there's kind of a chasm Mm -hmm. between you, the therapist that has been working with the child for, you know, three, four years, and you've established this wonderful rapport with the child and the parents and so on. And you've seen progress and development happen. And you know all of the ins and outs and the innuendos of that child and his history and so on, or her history. And you write it all down, (laughs) you know, but sometimes it doesn't make it to the school. You know, where the heck does it go? And how can we get information to the school therapist? Does the school therapist need to initiate, you know, a research and, and find out who you know, has been working with that child and how she or he can access information. I mean, boy, because you have the keys, you know, to to continue to move that child and advance that child. And it's almost like if you don't have that history as a speech language pathologist, you don't know the child's history of development. It's almost like we're starting from go. Yeah, and we don't need to do that. No, so you, it, that's my huge, you know. And that there's probably no easy answer to it. You know, I hope there is. But okay, so there's typically a breakdown within the SPED office 
between the IFSP to the IEP transition. So it's actually an issue that we're trying to work through troubleshooting here in our state. Okay, so you're saying the special ed office where? The SPED office. So that's that. Okay, so the where is the part that you got to tease out. Okay. So what happens is the early interventionist is legally obligated, early interventionist and or service coordinator. When a child turns two years and six months, they have to begin the transition process from the early intervention program to the LEA, to special education services with the public schools. Okay. Okay. In that process, they have to send in a copy of the current IFSP. The current IFSP should have all current practitioners on there, OT, PT, speech, unless they're not. Okay. So some of these kiddos, I have a little girl, case in point, she was diagnosed with Rett syndrome, um, R-E-T-T apostrophe S, Mm -hmm. Rett syndrome, when she was a year and change, Mm -hmm. the pediatrician, for unknown reasons, did not refer her to early intervention until she was two and change. She missed the boat. Yeah. And she, uh, yeah, we, we missed a lot. Okay. So, which everybody is like, how did that happen? I don't know. That's a really good question. And my eyelids twitching as I even think about it, but like, anywho, move it along. So, That being said, the conversation, I mean, I got brought in, the baby sat on my own personal wait list for a little while because I tend to have a a wait list. Uh, So when that transition period started over to the school districts, I wasn't technically on the IFSP because the baby was on the wait list. So it looked like the child only had early intervention, but no OTPT or speech because we were all just starting. Okay. So there's the potential for that breakdown. And like, that's one potential breakdown. Okay. And that does happen more times than you would care to talk about. Okay. So now best case scenario, all rehab members of the team are listed on the IFSP meeting or IFSP and it gets transitioned over. Somebody, whoever is responsible within the special education office, and they have different terms. Um, it'd be the intake coordinator or the, uh, the, I'm thinking like the accounts receivable kind of person, but that's like the money end. But I mean, whoever is the receiving person and there is a person whose job it is to get and to kind of monitor the data, they have to put everything into whatever IEP system that the school district chooses to use with. And I know there's like a ton of different IEP programs out there, right? Usually that in the schools, now in the schools that I've been in, they call mm-hmm. that person the case carrier. Okay. All right. So, okay. So it's kind of from case carrier to case carrier. Okay. Yes. Okay. So yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So early interventionist would be the P, like the early intervention case carrier to the special education case carrier. Same concept. Yeah. Okay. So then they put it in and we're relying on the fact that they have a current copy of that early interventionist had a current copy of our eval plan of care to turn around and give to the case carrier within the public schools for them to scan and upload to then give to whoever is the designated speech pathologist for preschool evaluations. 
And what I have found is that some school districts have one person in charge of preschool evaluations, just one person. And then another person would be doing the treatment, right? So there are all of these hands in the pot. There are so many options for breakdown. So if you have consent to release, and most school districts have the family sign off on the consent to release, make sure that first that you have a consent to release form signed, then ask the mom, who is the old speech path? Because I know that, I mean, and y'all feel free to check out. I have a very comprehensive consent form on my website. Take it, modify it, do what you want with it. Um, what is your website? It's Heartwood Speech Therapy. Heartwood, like actually spelt like a heartbeat, Heartwood Speech Therapy. And feel free to take it, borrow it, do what you want with it. But thank you. Absolutely. But that... So, so talk with the parent then. Talk with the parent and then talk with... And, but again, make sure you have your consent form signed then talk with the home health therapist. And I do what I can to either, I know me personally, when I have a kiddo going through the transition, I try to attend the final meeting when they're determining level of intervention, or I try to attend the meeting where they're developing the IEP, or I at least try to call in. But on my end, that's a non-billable time. Very nice of you to do that. Very nice, very necessary. Yeah. It should be billable because that mm-hmm. probably is one of the most critical pieces and probably where yes. some yes. of this ball dropping could be picked up. And that's what I have found is, I mean, I own my own private practice. Like I get to decide how I want to shape my day. Like I got to walk the dam on Monday in between patients. That was delightful. Also, if you're in South Carolina, please go check out Lake Murray. It's delightful. There's a dam you can walk. It's wonderful. It's hotter than people. That's the dam. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the dam. Okay. But like, that's, I mean, that's how mental health, right? We're, I'm, I'm working on a well-balanced SLP-ness. I mean, yes. I'm, Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you know how, how that goes down. But like, that's, I can decide that I want to attend those meetings and work for free because that's what's best. Do I don't always get there. Sometimes the early interventionist doesn't tell the home health person that a meeting has transpired. And the mom's like, oh, yeah, we met with the school district. And I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? Like, did they talk about this? Did you talk about this? But like, yeah. Yeah. And you made the comment earlier that like we're like the I feel like we're like the first one up to bat. Right. And it's my job to transition off to you guys. Yeah. One of the other things I want to mention on is. Something that I don't see being done in the EI world enough of is AAC. Mm-hmm. And that's a biggie. Yes. I was I was the queen of all things laminated Velcro, throw it in a notebook <laughs> and run with French vocab, right? Like I, I mean, I was the queen of that methodology. And then I took a boatload of classes and now I'm like core vocab and like AAC and motor planning. But, you know, it's a thing. But I say that because now I try to, when appropriate, embed AAC as much as I can into my early intervention. And I have found that to be, I mean, you got feeding running, right? But I mean, how often do we actually utilize AAC within an early childhood special education classroom? I mean, some classes are phenomenal at it. And some classes, the school districts are so afraid of the cost that they don't, there are unwritten policies that a child has to be at a certain level with a certain program before they can even make a referral. 
for a speech generating device, which is actually a violation of the Communication Bill of Rights. Uh-huh. That's a thing. Okay. Well. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, that's fun. And then I try to use it in the home health and I do everything I can that if I'm using a device, try to get their insurance to pay for it. Because what I have found, especially in my rural school districts with lower income, if I can get that device in the kids' hands before they cross the threshold of the school districts, I've had school SLPs like flat out just tell me thank you because you know that wouldn't have happened because like my hands are tied and like my heart goes out to them because thank you. <laughs> like I couldn't do what y'all do. And I am so grateful for y'all because one, y'all are the amazing SLPs that are treating my Theodore. And two, I mean, y'all are fighting with one arm tied behind your back. And then, I mean, I kind of feel like walking in one foot in a high heel and the other foot barefoot, right? <laughs> really truthfully. And sometimes, yeah, there's, there's so many th- things that would be wonderful if they were changed. Yeah. But, you know, therapists just, you know, school therapists, and I love school therapists. They just, you know, they keep going and they keep learning and they keep growing and they're child-centered and, you know, all the things that you're talking about with early interventionists and preschoolers too. I mean, speech therapists are speech therapists, no matter who they are working with or what age or discipline. And our time is, is growing short here, Michelle. And I just want to express my admiration for you and for what you do and how you impact your kids and but also especially for sharing your huge amount your breadth depth and breadth of knowledge today so it really does help it totally does help to have a sense of where you're coming from you know the process of and what we can do at the receiving end so thank you so much Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm, I always feel like I word vomit my nerdiness at people. <laughs> but like, I'm not good at taking compliments. So self-deprecating humor is like my way out. <laughs> but like, go team, yay! Well, no, you are. You, you are just a fascinating person, number one. And just the knowledge. I know you haven't been out there in the field that long. And, you know, you're going to be super scary when you're in for like 50 years, girl. You know? <laughs> well, I'll be completely gray by then because this stripe is getting wider and wider in the front and like the hairstylist. And I told her, I was like, don't color my stripe, color the gray everywhere else, but leave my stripe. And when I went back the last time, she goes, girl, a stripe, start to cover up about the front third of your head. I'm like, ooh, I'm only 36. So like, maybe don't let it do all that much. <laughs> you have a stripe? Is it a gray stripe? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I have a gray streak right in the front of my face. And I've had it since I was a kid. And my grandma told really? me it's where the angels kissed me. And my Aww. dad told me it's where the Henri comes out. So like, <laughs> I like the angels version better. <laughs> yes, we'll go with that one. Yeah. We'll but, um, it, yeah. it actually runs in my family. All the women through the Wood family bloodline, and it's where the Cherokee comes in. All of the women on that side have the stripe, except my sister's came in in her right sideburn. So she colors it because she says nobody wants a white sideburn. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, Michelle. Well, I could just sit and talk with you for hours, but uh, you know. We got to switch to questions, baby. <laughs> you know, we'll have to do this again. This was absolutely yes. fun. I learned yes. so much from you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbeauchart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years, and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charbochart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charbochart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then... Thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well and God bless.